Blog Talk Radio. This is Mark Grace, and you're listening to Ready to Unload with Cal and Sandpeed. Welcome to Ready to Unload with Cal and Sam Pete on this Thursday, June the 9th, 2011. I am one of your hosts, Steve Sampietro. Thank you for joining us for the podcast slash episode. We are live, and uh, we will be joined by Kevin Greenstein from InsideHockey.com a little later on in the show. We have a ton to talk about, so welcome to the episode. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the uh, mistake that was just made was my own. <laughs> I hit the uh, the stop on the switchboard a little too early. Very smooth. We're, we're going to be a, a production gem tonight uh, because our our buddy Pop Culture PJ is producing for us. But before we talk to him, because he's got a lot to say, I need to bring in the guy whose name is on you know the banner outside the door that we hang at Dumpling Sound Studios too here. The guy who's you know he's got his name on the clipboard on the on the letterhead in a, in a special font that he requested, and that is Mr. Brian Calniva Caliente Calpino. Brian Calvi, welcome Cal to another episode, another edition of Ready to Unload with Cal and Sam Pete. Your Cal, I'm Sam Pete. Unload. Well, that's convenient. <laughs> it worked out well. How are you, buddy? Good, good. I'm bad, I'm battling a little bit of a head cold. So who's winning? Uh, I ask uh, the cold. <laughs> cold <laughs> six, Cal two. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. Um, so bear with me tonight. Well, we will we will definitely bear with you. If you can, you know what's really professional, Cal? Yeah. Other, other than the open that I just butchered, what's really professional is to sniffle into the microphone a ton. Yeah, I know. If you can do that, that'd be great. I did that once for effect. How did you, how did you get sick? What were you doing? I, I don't know. Probably the kids. Oh, sure. Blame it on the kids. Which is ironic because now the kids are not sick and they're frolicking about now as summer is approaching. And <laughs> here well, I am. I can't even breathe. It was 137 degrees today in New York. Did you in know that? Shade. In the shade. In the shade, yes. Summer is ah. upon us. We had a heat wave. Hot town, summer in the city. Back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Who sings that song? I don't know. Wow. Uh, well, what better way than to welcome in? Can I use my lifeline? <laughs> let's let's do it. Use your lifeline. Who is it? Bring him in. PJ, Pop Culture PJ. Who could it possibly be? Oh, it's Pop Culture PJ, our producer. And Bond Vivon, an all-around fantastic guy. Hi, PJ. Hi, everybody. <laughs> you are, trying, you? are you trying to do voices? What's happening? Are you a Muppet? I had a banana. <laughs> Congratulations, PJ. Who sings that song? Hot Town, Summer in the Love and Spoonful. Really? I, why did I not know that? The great, oh, you were asking who John sings Sebastian. It. Yes, I was. Yeah, Cal. I was asking who sings it. What do you think oh, I was talking? I thought, I thought it was a quiz. No, I was asking you who sang it. 
Oh, okay. But it did provide a perfect introduction to the man, the myth, the legend, pop culture, PJ. What's up, Peach? Thanks for... <laughs> no, no, you say that, sir. Say what? Meeting is adjourned. It is? <laughs> uh, Peach, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, we could do that all night, of course, the brilliant Blazing Saddles. How was your week, pal? Very good. Yeah, why very good? Work. Yeah, a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of studio time. Ah, uh, nice. Good, productive. Excellent. I felt like a, like a person. Excellent, <laughs> as opposed to a fern. Right. <laughs> well, you uh, you said to me you have some special pop culture stuff for the second half of the show. So, uh, will you will you bring bring that uh, to us later? If necessary, uh, I I have a topic that I think is of great importance. Okay. Um, wow, that was very like. Sort of official and Lord of the Rings-ish, and well, I want <laughs> you to know that it's not you know I don't do, I don't take it lightly. Okay, I'm PJ, not throwing it uh, out there for witty banter. I, I'm throwing it out there because uh, I want to know the facts. Fair enough. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> PJ, how and is, with uh, that, I'll grind the show to a halt. <laughs> no, 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 PJ, how is? How is Sugar Watch 2011 going? Uh, it's going good. Yeah. What are we up going to? Going good. Yeah. We uh, we uh, we got uh, we got the monkey off the back. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, we're in week three of uh, PJ Off Sugar. Well, week uh, one was it doesn't really count as a week. We're in day three of PJ yeah. Off Sugar. <laughs> That's closer. Yeah. Yeah, it keeps getting reset. Well, uh, go grab yourself a Twix, and uh, we'll talk to you in a bit. No. Oh. No, no Twix. No Twix. What? Why would you do that to him? Yeah. <laughs> I'm I sorry. I made me. something for you guys. You did? Yeah. I uh, I, I, recorded, uh, I recorded a track of a certain uh, Excalibur guitar. Ah, yes. For those of you who have been listening the last few weeks, uh, Pop Culture PJ, a guitar uh, maven, has apparently gotten the one guitar to rule them all. And uh, he was going to write something and play something, so maybe we'll hear that later, buddy? If you wish. Oh, we wish. Oh, we wish. Well, Cal, Cal, let's get into this here, and we'll talk to PJ in a bit. Uh, And thank him again for producing the show. He's got all sorts of, it looks like, surprises for us, Cal. He's like a savant. He is like a savant. How does one define a savant, by the way? I don't know. You have to apply for savanthood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's like being knighted. No. Like is it like, men- is it like Mensa? He was named a savant. It is like Mensa. Yeah, I-, I think savant gets bandied about a little too much. I think bandied gets bandied about a little too much while we're at it. <laughs> Speaking of bandied, Cal. Yeah. Uh, this has nothing to do with it, but let's get to the big unload here. And that is, and of course, again, we're going to be welcoming Kevin Greenstein in, talk to him a little bit. Uh, he's the guy at InsideHockey.com, big hockey guy. He was at the game the other night, Cal. He game was four? At, he was at, yeah, he was at game four up in uh, the TD Bank Garden. So he'll give us uh, a little feel for that. We'll talk about the uh, the unfortunate injury to uh, to Horton on the hit. Um, you know, what is the NHL going to do about headshots? All that stuff. We're going to talk to him at about ten o'clock. Uh, but. Uh, Cal, to start, uh, the Yankees and the Red Sox renewing their rivalries this week, the age-old rivalry, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that 
it actually matters now because the Red Sox are not, you know, 10 games under 500. Uh, and now the Red Sox have taken over first place. And we saw on uh, the first game of the series on Tuesday night with the little chin music, John Lester. Actually, it was knee music as he knocks uh, Mark Teixeira out in the, fir- uh, in the first inning with a shot to the knee. But Teixeira plays the next night. Big Poppy flips the bat, Cal. Flips the bat. He flipped it. Uh, flipped it at the dugout after a pitch comes inside to him. Mm-hmm. No retaliation from the Yankees last night. Big Poppy goes yard again. And did you see the – I got to mention this quote. You know, people hate or love Big Poppy. And if you're a Yankee fan, obviously you hate him. But God bless it, do you respect him? Uh, but he said one of the reporters, Cal, asked him if – was asking him about the pitch he hit uh, for the home run yesterday. He hit a two-run home run in the first inning off A.J. Burnett. And he was asking him about the pitch he hit. And, <laughs> you know, the, the the one reporter said to him, you know, well, what was it? And Big Poppy's response was, a bomb. <laughs> he said, what'd you, what'd you hit? A bomb. <laughs> Ouch. I love it. Uh, Cal, have you watched any of these games? I have. And your impressions now on this, like, does this start the, the season? No. No. The season started well before this. I understand that, Brian. I'm not being, you know, I'm not I'm not being uh literal. Yeah, I'm not being literal. I'm saying, you know, Yankees, Red Sox first place on the line, big series at Yankee Stadium. This uh, started the whole thing. Yeah, I don't feel like that though. You know, really? I mean, it I I feel that it's a, it's a big series and this is the perfect time in the schedule for this series to happen. Right. But I but you know, I the season is is, is entrenched at this point. Yeah, it's the first week in June. Yeah, no, I, I understand that, but given the start that the Sox got off to, no, you know, I agree. Like I'm, I'm two just... and ten, and you know they were they were struggling all that. They've played like nine hundred baseball since then. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the I... the other the other thing we saw, Cal, was that the Yankees, the starting staff, gets a little bit exposed. I mean, CC, uh, I think was supposed to pitch tonight, right? Yeah, he's pitching tonight. They have taken the tarp off the field, so it looks like we're going to get some baseball, which is great because. You want a Yankees-Red Sox game to start at 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, because they don't go long, traditionally. On a, on a weeknight. That's nice. Yeah, no. That that really game nice. should wrap up right around 2, 2.30. I'm thinking people getting up for work in the morning might get right. the end of it. That's right. Well, uh, Cal, we're going to talk more about the Yankees. We're going to talk about uh, uh, the NBA Finals, of course, Game 5 tonight, a pivotal Game 5. LeBron back from uh, checking out in Game 4, only putting up eight points. Actually, I think he just kind of had a ticket and was watching Dwayne Wade. Yes. Dwayne Wade was magnificent, but uh, the Nowitzkis uh, have tied up the series against uh, the Heat. So we'll talk about that. But we uh, we have a call. PJ's letting us know we have a caller. Uh, Wade is calling in from New Jersey, and he has a, uh, a question about hockey. Uh, Wade, welcome to Ready to Unload with Cal and Sam Pete. You are on the air. Hey, what's going on, dudes? Yeah, I actually do have a question about hockey. And uh, sure. I'm a black dude in New Jersey, and I occasionally watch hockey. And I just uh, I thought about this the other day. Actually, I thought about it a while ago. And uh, I want to toss it out for you guys to answer if if you could. Uh, a non-PC sure. answer, by the way. Yeah, I need a non-PC answer. Let's, let's presume that hockey was predominantly black, sort of like the NBA. Do you think hockey fights would be any different? Do I think, wow, that is the most intriguing question I've ever heard. <laughs> 
do I think the fights would be any different as as far as or do I think the officiating would be any different or do I think that the product would be any different or do I think that the demographic that was watching the game would be any different? No, a very specific question. Do you think the actual okay. fights would be different? In what sense? Well, because I've noticed that white dudes, I'm, I'm a black dude, and I've, I've had fights with both white and black dudes. And in hockey fights, white dudes can fight and then walk away and get back to the game. Black dudes will wait for you after the game is over and still want to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for the call, Wade. Um, yes, it's a <laughs> – that was excellent. Uh, you know, I – he brings up a very interesting point, and it's something we can talk to Kevin about. And, uh, you know, I think Wade was being facetious. And I, actually, Wade, thanks for the call, man. Um, and I, I think he was being a bit facetious, but he was being a bit serious. And one of the things we talked about last week, Cal, in, you know, in detail was this idea of why is hockey not a bigger sport? And one thing we didn't touch on, and maybe it was a little Pollyanna of us, maybe it was a little naive, was to also talk about the economics and the, you know, the socioeconomic uh, – uh, factors that go into who plays hockey and who doesn't. And the fact that the African-American community really doesn't have the ability to play uh, hockey sometimes in urban areas. There's not hockey rinks. You know, like we said, we did say last week, anybody can pick up a basketball and play basketball. You know, there's a hoop everywhere. There's not a hockey rink everywhere. And so he brings up a very good point that maybe there would be, maybe hockey would be, hockey has been known as sort of a white sport. And maybe the popularity of hockey would increase if it was, you know, if there were more African Americans or more even minorities. I mean, forget about African Americans, you know, but even more minorities playing the game. I mean, you can point directly, Cal, to uh, uh, some of the the strides that baseball made, for example, when the Latin player, uh, uh, you know, became popular, uh, especially in the '80s. You know, I mean, you think about like Fernando Valenzuela and, and Fernando Mania and stuff like that. Uh, hockey has never had that, you know. I mean, football's a, a melting pot. You know, you have uh, African Americans, you have you know, you have all sorts of uh, minorities playing football. Hockey, hockey, hockey had it with the influx of European players. Yeah, but that's not going to do anything for television ratings, Cal. Uh, w- one will argue that it it sent ratings down. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know? and that's not going to boost television ratings. Nope. Gonna, you know. No, certainly not going to boost it. Yeah, but but there's also a socioeconomic, uh, you know, factor to this, in that it's expensive to play hockey. You know, that's why the old adage about uh, why aren't there more African Americans in the NHL is because these kids uh, don't grow up playing hockey. I mean, it's it's a very upper middle class sort of suburban sport. You're right. To to play in a in a youth league is ridiculously expensive, so it doesn't happen. And so Wade, while he was being a little funny, and you know what, I <laughs> I don't know about the whole idea of how the fights would be different, but uh, you know it brings to, he brought to mind the old my favorite one of my favorite lines in Back to School, Cal, when he's talking about uh, did you have to fight the first of all it's Keith Gordon in one of his last roles we never saw him again the guy from Christine. <laughs> And uh, you know, he says, uh, "Did you have to fight the whole football team?" You know, that nah, that football team wasn't so tough. The football team at my high school, high school was tough. They would sack the quarterback, then they would go after his family. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Wade, thanks for the call. And uh, even being facetious, you brought up a pretty good point. And uh, I'm 
I, I, I'm, I see you've had fights against white dudes and black dudes. <laughs> that was not a call I was expecting. How about you, Cal? No, well, it's an equal opportunity fighter, at least. <laughs> you know. He takes all comers. We're going to talk more about hockey with Kevin Greenstein of InsideHockey.com uh, in about 15 minutes. He's going to come on the show. Uh, let's get back to uh, baseball for a sec, Cal. And we'll go back to the hockey. So going back to this Red Sox-Yankees thing uh, and this this big series, do you feel that the Yankee fan does not get pumped up for this series anymore? No, I think the Yankee fan gets pumped up for this series big time. Still. Yeah, just judging by the disappointment in some of their voices over the last two days, how how upset they are that the, that the Yankees have lost both games, I think that they, they definitely get pumped up for this series. Still, have you uh, okay? Because I haven't been talking to the Yankee fans. The only Yankee fan I talk to on a regular basis is our buddy Dr. E. Ray Stat on paternity leave. Right. A moment of hushed silence. <laughs> a moment of mu- a moment of muffled conversation. That's going to be one of those things that, in like seven years from now, he's still going to be on paternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> Kid's going to be in college. Uh, that's a, the old Carlin bit. Carlin wants to know why it's a moment of silence. Uh-huh. For somebody who's died, like why isn't it, you know, why isn't it a moment of screaming? Isn't that more appropriate for somebody who's died? Like, let's have a moment of really, how about a moment of muffled conversation for, for those who were treated and released? <laughs> <laughs> so we will have a we will have a moment of muffled conversation for Doctor Eristad on paternity leave. Um, no, but he's the only Yankee fan I talk to on a regular basis. I mean, I see the tweets. Well, that, I I guess I'm going by that. Right. But I, there doesn't seem to be any juice, Cal, in the stadium. Doesn't seem to be any juice. Well, is that a, is that a symptom of that new stadium? I mean, they won a championship there. What, what gives? I want to no know, juice. Cal. There was no juice during the year they won the championship. But this is my big unload. This is what I want to know. Well, have at it. I want. Well, I want to know where's the juice in this series. Well, I don't have that answer. First of all, the Red Sox have dominated this year. I think that's and part of it. I think, think that's, that's part of your answer. But they dominated them in 2009, and the Yankees won the World Series. But you, but are we talking about juice? Yes, we're talking about the juice. Okay, if we're talking about the juice, they dominated them in 2009, and there was no juice in the stadium. I so think you're, that you're saying the juice is not coming back. I'm not saying it's not coming back. There's no juice for the people who want the juice, who need the juice. You like the juice? You like the, the juice is nice. There we go. Now we're back to 1995 SNL. The reason we gotta we gotta we gotta bring this up, Cal. Yeah. The reason this is for some reason, I'm having one of those days. Have you ever had this? I know pop culture PJ has. You, the, your day started early. Yes, I'm having it's been one a of long those, day. One of those days where every reference I make, every joke I make, is trapped from 1982 to like 1998. Every reference I'm, I it started early with a Jar Jar Binks reference. Yeah, and and you know as Doctor Iray said in the tweets or, or in the text that we had going back and forth, he's like, "Boy, you are really rolling here." He's like, "I'm waiting for like a Where's the Beef and a, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I just could not." His his best line was he <laughs> says to me, "Cal, have fun hosting tonight with 1987 Dana Carvey." Because then after a while, I start playing to it. You know, after right, and then, oh, yeah, that's yeah. all you needed. 
Right. After a while, I, I started thinking in those terms. But right. the the day completely started out with me making a Jar Jar Binks reference and then like a You Look Marvelous reference. And suddenly I'm completely trapped. And it yeah, has, it has not stopped. You can't pull yourself out of that. No, I need to I need to reference something from this year. Give me something from this year. I don't yeah, know. gee whiz, I'll figure it out. But anyway, do we, we talk about Anthony Weiner? Sure, <laughs> that that would be good. That would be right? current. Unless, of course, I compare it to like uh, the Lewinsky, you know, Clinton, right? <laughs> Sex scandal. Hey, have a cigar, Anthony Weiner. <laughs> hey, don't get any on the dress. Um. Wow. Uh, anyway, I, I don't think there's any juice in this uh, In this, I agree with you. Series. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a little tired of Joe Girardi, this old school manager, you know, coming out and defending his player and saying he doesn't like the Ortiz uh, bat flip and stuff like that. And then the next night, you know, they groove him a fastball on 3-2. Plunk him. Come on. I mean, we're going to talk about this in the second half of the show, the unwritten baseball rules. And we had talked about this a while back. Oh, right. gosh. That was an early show, right? Yeah. This was back in, I think, version 1.0. Yeah, this was, this was, yeah, this was still in – we were in beta. We were testing. <laughs> we, were, we were prodigy at that point. Um, but, it, you know, the, there are unwritten rules in baseball. Do you retaliate? Do you throw back at a guy? Whatever. We're going to talk a little bit about it because Buster Posey got run over a couple weeks ago. There's all sorts of cries out for rule changes. And also, I don't know if you saw Cal Bryce Harper throwing a kiss, blowing a kiss to the pitcher after he hit a home run. Did you catch I that? Did, I did see that. Yeah. So uh, Classy young man. Yes. The unwritten rule is you hit one of ours, we hit one of yours. Right. You you send one of ours to the morgue. We send one. You send one of ours to the hospital. We send one of yours to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's the, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do the accent with my – And that's Sam Pete referencing a movie from 1987. There we go. <laughs> that's the Chicago way, and that's how you get Capone. Listen, I'm 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 not a big fan of playing that game. I don't I don't think there's a huge place in baseball for it. But if the situation dictates it, you gotta you gotta hop on board. And Ortiz is he might as well be sleeping at the at the plate. That's how comfortable he is. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's unbelievable. A lot of these guys say that like. The thing that you know pissed me off the other night, Cal, after he you know he hit the home run, there was an inside pitch. It, it wasn't at his head. It was an inside pitch at his knees, which is the best way to get a guy off the plate is make him move his feet. Right. Okay. And you would have thought that he threw a ninety-five mile an hour fastball at his bean. Mm. I mean, these hitters are to blame too. They're, they 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 get indignant when you pitch inside to them. How dare you? <laughs> they get Michael K indignant on you. That's what they say. You're right. I mean, and and you know, 30 years ago, I mean, could you imagine if he did that to Don Drysdale or Bob Gibson? Oh, Bob Gibson? Oh my gosh. Or even Dwight Gooden in the mid 80s. Dwight Gooden would have would have put one between the the 3 and the 4 on Poppy's back. If he would have glanced out at Bob Gibson after an inside pitch, the next pitch would have been even further inside. Yeah, exactly. The next the next pitch would have been behind him. Right. So these hitters get all <clears throat> these hitters get all indignant. These pitchers don't, you know, sort of pitch with guts. There's a way to pitch inside. You don't have to throw at the guy's head. Okay? No. You can do exactly what that kid did, which is throw at his knees. 
Right. You know, I mean, throw inside and make him move his feet. Right. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> I'm tired of hearing Girardi say, you know, oh, I'm sticking up for my kid. I didn't like the bat flip, whatever. Yeah, you know what? Plant him. Plant him next game. Do something about it. Yeah, that's it. You know, and the Yankees, I mean, like you said, Big Poppy's opening up a restaurant in the batter's box. My goodness. <clears throat> He's awfully comfortable. Awfully comfortable. He's got his little blankie. And a teddy bear. Sitting in a lounge chair. <laughs> got a Mai Tai. <laughs> you know. Why is he wearing a Hawaiian shirt in the what, batter's box? What was that you hit? A bomb, Poppy. Yeah, he and and, and he knows it. That's that's the other thing. That's if, if you're a Yankee fan, to hear that quote, he knows exactly what he's doing. Yep. He's basically daring you. You know. Go ahead. You know, like the old the old uh Energizer or the Duracell battery commercial where they get the battery on the shoulder. Go ahead. I dare you. Knock it off. Wow. And what year is that commercial from? I, well, before my time. <laughs> we are uh, really current here on Radio Unlimited. It's retro. It's retro night. It is retro night. We're going to talk hockey, for God's sake. Of course, well, it's retro night. Well, retro's coming back. Retro's. Our buddy uh, Phil Soto Ortiz that we had on a couple weeks ago. Yes. Awesome. Awesome Yankee guy, big-time hockey fan, and uh, he had posted a message today uh, that he says he's done trying to convert non-hockey fans. If this series doesn't get you, then you've got no hope. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, I mean, it's had a little bit of everything. We're going to talk about it with uh, Kevin in a couple of minutes from InsideHockey.com. And it's it's had it all, uh, baby. Uh but uh, it, it, just to finish up on the baseball, of course, the Metropolitans, it is what it is. Uh, you know, Jose Reyes is making a strong bid to not be traded, uh, sort of letting everybody know that uh, I'm healthy, I'm fantastic, look at me. And uh, the bullpen blew another uh, ball game for them yesterday, but Jose looks pretty good, Cal. Pretty good. Pretty, You've seen it. Pretty, <laughs> pretty good. Well, you've seen all the scuttlebutt lately, Cal, about right now that the narrative has become that you have to trade David Wright to keep Jose Reyes. Can't keep them both. No, it's impossible. Right. So they've changed the narrative. You were already fitting Jose Reyes for his San Francisco Giants jersey. And then once it became apparent that Sandy Alderson is not just going to trade him because his on-base percentage isn't 390. uh, He's not a a Sandy Alderson type player. Yeah. Once that nonsense went out the window. Uh, now the new narrative is, well, you got to trade David Wright. You can't possibly keep them both. Let's not, you know, keep in mind the $64 million coming off the books. Anyway, because uh, uh, certain people have new accounting systems, apparently. But, Cal, uh, before we get to the hockey, Kevin's going to join us in a minute. Um, the NBA Finals, Game 5 going on tonight. Game 4 with uh, LeBron and the checkout and the whole thing. Um have you watched any of the NBA Finals? Or is that a, or is that a better question for me? No, I, I, you've probably watched more than me, believe it or not. I haven't watched much of it at all. Right. One of my, I, I, I saw the end of Game Two when the Mavericks made that huge run. Okay. To come back and and they were down by, gosh, they were down by thirteen with like four minutes left. They were down by yeah, they were down by fifteen with like six. Right. And uh, Dwayne Wade hits the big three in the corner right along the Mavericks bench. And then they celebrate it in front of the bench. Right. So he holds it for about a month and a half. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he releases the shot, holds his arm up uh, until Tuesday. Uh-huh. And Amy Mann. And then uh, runs off, and that obviously pissed off the Dallas Mavericks because they had the furious comeback, came back, made it a series. No game, Cal, no game over 100 points yet. No. And every game close. Yep, a lot of defense being played. A couple of... Uh, you know, a couple of the games, too, have been two points. They've all been close games. Game five uh, tonight, and, and game five, and we're going to see game five in, in, the, in the Stanley Cup Finals also, never more appropriate to use the word pivotal than in a game five of a playoff series. Ever? Because, ever. Because this puts the winning team up three games to two and puts them one win away from a championship. You can't get more pivotal than that. Can you? I, <laughs> is that a challenge? Yeah, it is. Go. But I, uh, all right, settle down, Chach. All I'm saying is this. In one series, though, it's more pivotal than the other. Um. And tell me why. In one series, it's more pivotal than the other. Right. In one of the sports, in their best of seven, going on right now, one game five is more important than the other one. Right. The basketball game five is much more important. And why is that, Brian? That's because they're going back to Miami, and if Miami wins tonight, the series is practically over. Because? Because they have two games right. back in Miami, whereas in hockey, it's one and one. It's one, one, and one. Well, after game five, it's one and one, yes. Right, but five, six, and seven are one, one, and one. So they don't play – game five in the NHL is in Vancouver, correct? That's right. Right, so the pivotal game is at home. Which is uh, well it, on the road for if you're Boston. No, no, but I'm saying that the the pivotal game, right? But what I'm saying is they go back to Boston for a game six. Yeah, you you've got if the loser of game five has a better shot. Like if Boston loses game five, they've got a better shot at staying in the series because they're going home. Precisely. All right. Precisely. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's bring Kevin in. What do you think? Let's do it. Should we welcome into the unload? Yes. All right. Pop Culture PJ, do we have music to welcome in? Uh, we do. <laughs> Excellent. I think I'm drunk listening to that song. <laughs> All right. Let's welcome him in from InsideHockey.com. He is Kevin Greenstein. Welcome to Ready to Unload. Kevin, how are you, buddy? Hey, I'm doing well, guys. How's everything going there? Going really good. So uh, uh, just to let the folks know, uh, uh, Kevin is uh, what is the editor-in-chief of InsideHockey.com? Absolutely. Founder and editor-in-chief, both. How long have you had the site, Kevin? About 10 years. Ten years. Yeah, I've been paying close attention to the NHL for a long time. You're the one. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I kid. I tease the NHL NHL because I love the NHL. Now, uh, you said that uh, you told PJ, though, that you could talk about the Mets for a second. Anything you want to get in on the Mets before we get into the hockey? Well, you know, the the deal that the guy struck to get some some ownership of the team was was a stroke of genius. But – it doesn't actually 
help the Mets' long-term prognosis because it puts them in this very weird position where if Wilpon decides he wants to retain control, he'll have ceded a significant percentage of the ball club to someone and not collected any money from them for it. So I don't know how much money the Wilpon, Wilpon is going to be willing to spend on players in this whole debate, right or Reyes. I mean, if you're a Mets fan, you want both of them there. And it's hard to justify removing either one of those players from the lineup because if you get rid of one, you kind of have to get rid of both because there's no point to keeping either of them without the other. I think that's a fantastic point. And we talked a little bit a couple of weeks ago about uh, David Einhorn and the you know, the minority ownership. And, and Cal and I both sort of agree that he is you know, he's a guy who's made his money in hedge funds and he's gambling. Uh, essentially that uh you know the Wilpons are gonna be forced to sell the team that they're gonna be on the wrong end of a uh of the Picard uh trust. You're gonna be on yep. the wrong end of that and have to uh, be forced to sell the team for pennies on the dollar. Which I think Yeah, and this PR campaign that he's been waging showing up in the New Yorker <laughs> and in Sports Illustrated, I mean it's so unsightly. Yeah, it's good <laughs> once again the Mets covering themselves in PR glory. Well, the, be- the best part about it was it was intended to paint them in a sympathetic light. Yeah, it was intended to, but it it was not going to actually succeed in that in that fashion, and the the risk was far greater than the reward. But he I had mean, nobody telling the organization that. in mud. Yeah, it's you know this this to me is even worse than Vince Coleman and Brett Saberhagen. Oh sure, they're players. I mean, they're unruly players. You can distance yourself from the players, but when the owner calls the team S-H-I-T-T, double hockey sticks. Uh, you know, when the owner does that, that's your product. I mean, that's, right. that's then he's asking you to go and watch that crappy team. That's right. Like, and here he oh, is. He's making fun of Carlos Beltran depreciating the player's value. I mean, forget about anything else. Let's just say that the Mets actually do have to trade off these players. Well, their own owner has actually sold them under the bus because now Alderson is going to get pennies on the dollar for these guys because he knows that Wilpon doesn't value him and Wilpon doesn't have the money to pay him. Well, I, I see. We thought that was I thought that was overrated, Kevin. I'll be honest with you. To only because only because I feel like. You know, no GM or baseball guy out there is going to – I don't think it's going to change the way they viewed Jose Reyes. In other words, I don't think it's going to up the offer or or make the offer significantly less because the offer is going to be what it is. There's well, no, you're, no, you're playing, you're playing poker here, though. If you yeah. think that Wilpon values Reyes and will sign him at any cost, then you have to be willing to give up more if you think Reyes is the player who puts you over the top. Yeah. They're not playing poker here. They're showing their cards. And there's no strategy in that. Carlos Beltran, is he really making fun of Carlos Beltran? He's a guy who signs with the Mets on the basis of one really strong playoff series. He was a decent player. He had an unbelievable playoff series for Houston, and he got the big dollars. And he shows up for the Mets playing in a hitter's park and basically puts himself on track for the Hall of Fame. There aren't very many 300-300 guys. Yeah, Beltran, to well, me, is a borderline Hall of Famer right now. He he was, absolutely. And he did most of it as a Met. I, I think injuries have a derailed his career. I don't know. Oh, he's certainly not a disappointment, and, and he's judged as a Met on one swing. That's but, right, I, or one non-swing, as it were. one non-swing, right. But what Cal, but, Cal, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is I think that was part of, of the misguided strategy of Fred Wilpon. He knows how the fans feel about Beltran, so that was kind of why he made that comment. 
thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to get the fans on my side because they don't like him either. Yeah, I just I, – I, I up in his face. Cheap, then. That's pretty cheap. Yeah, well, he, it is. you know, we've said it a million times on this show over the last 14 or uh, 15 months, and that's – you know, Fred Wilpon's an idiot. I mean, he's just <laughs> – he's just – He's just a little bit of an idiot when it comes to owning this baseball team. All he all he wanted to do was own the Dodgers, and he owns the Mets. You know, so the Dodgers are available, Fred. Uh, he can't, you know, he can't. You know, that's he, an interesting point. The idea that Will Pond could be put in charge of the Dodgers and re- absolve everyone of this mess. That's right. <laughs> so, all right. So, Kevin, let's get to the hockey because uh, uh, we we've been dying to talk about this for a couple of weeks, and uh, you know, as this this. Uh, playoffs have been going on, and uh, and now of course we're in the Cup Finals. We're tied at two. Uh, so give us. Uh, let's start with the game the other night uh, where the Bruins uh, evened up the series. You were at the game. Uh, I read some. <clears throat> I read your uh, entry on InsideHockey.com, and also uh, you were just talking about the game a little bit. What was the feel like? Was it crazy? Boston. You know, this was the second game, obviously, but uh, in Boston, but. What was it like? Was it just fantastic? It's crazy loud and celebratory. And, you know, you've got this team that isn't actually making good on what its fan base wants it to do from a, you know, from an under-the-skin kind of perspective. I mean, they want somebody to take out Burroughs. They want mm-hmm. somebody to take out Aaron Roan. They didn't want it to be a suspension. Right. But at the same time, this is a team that's been victimized by so many questionable hits. You know, the Randy Jones hit on Patrice Bergeron, the hit on Andrew Alberts when he was still a Bruin. Now he's with the Canucks. Um, you know, the stuff with Mark Savard, Matt Cook. I mean, it's just one thing after another with this team where these key players are taken out of the lineup by these big hits that are questionable at best and dirty at worst. And so well, here Kevin- you are. You know, getting to this point in the season, and everyone's thinking, "All right, this is where the shoe come, where, where the other shoe falls, and this is where this team is going to collapse." Now we know, now we don't have our biggest goal scorer and our best passer, and the attitude is sort of this defeatist attitude that can be pretty prevalent. And yet, this team just keeps on scrapping, and because they keep on scrapping, it's it's hard not to be caught up in the contagion of watching this team play. I mean, guys like Brad Marchand and Rich Peverly stepping up and delivering performances that make you think they're much better players than they've ever shown themselves to be before. <laughs> and that's really good fun to watch. Now, you, you talk about the defeatist attitude. Now, even getting the series tied 2-2, and they didn't, they didn't exactly get their pound of flesh from Vancouver, but they did outscore them 12-1 to in these two games. Do they still yeah, absolutely. And, we, and, you know, how, and how much more poetic could it be that Peverly, the guy who's subbing for Horton on the first line, scores two of the goals, right. and, Fer- and, and Brad Ferris absolutely schools Keith Ballard, who's only in the lineup because Rome was suspended. Right. So, right. you know, three goals of the four the Bruins scored came from guys taking advantage of situations that were directly resulting from that hit. And for the Canucks, the idea that they could take a guy out who's seemingly critical and have the Bruins come back stronger, I mean, and and not just stronger, but 12-1 to in two games stronger. And it really speaks volumes for the Bruins' moxie. And meanwhile, you look at these Canucks, and they came out playing cheap, the biting, the the dirty hits, the, the taunting. 
And now look at where they are. And they're wondering whether their superstar goalie can keep it together to keep them in the series. I mean, they don't know what they've got. Right, that was my... We all uh, know they've got a mess. That was my next question, too, Kevin, as far as uh, Roberto Luongo, who, of course, we Islander fans know all about. Um, But, uh, you know, what what do they do here? What do the Canucks do? I mean, obviously there's going to be an outcry in Canada uh, for the, the rookie backup. Uh, you know, is Roberto Luongo, are they in his head? Is he picking the wrong time? You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how he's never really been a, never really been a big time playoff goalie to us. You know, um, it, do, do they make that move? Well, you know, you look at Luongo's history and much of it was spent playing for teams that were subpar or worse than that. And he made those teams better, much better than they would have been without him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, never in a way like Patrick Roy for the Canadians in 90, 93 or 86, where he really, really showed himself to be just one of the, one of the greatest players of all time in those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look, at, you look at where these Canucks are now with Luongo, and they've actually got a very good team around him. And what we've seen from Luongo is that he's been able to step in for Brodeur in international competition in the World Cup in 2004, and as he did in the Olympics as well, and he's shown himself to be very good in those situations. But, and, you know, there isn't much more pressure than playing for the gold medal for Canada in Canada. Yeah. I mean, that's big. <laughs> yeah. And he, you know, that, that's about as big as it gets. I mean, we talk about the cup, it's big. Well, that's all of Canada supporting one team. Right. So, you, know, you think about, you know, the percentage of fan interest in the NHL in total related to those six, now seven Canadian teams. You know, it's a big deal when all the fans are, are supporting that one team and living and breathing by each moment of that team. And the questioning that goes on with regard to the goaltending is pretty severe. Um, yeah. And the Wallace has handled that very, very well. Well, Kevin, but how do you. How he's do you handled think? it as the backup. He's handled right. it as the guy everybody wants. You know, everybody's. You know, the, the line about backup quarterbacks are always the most popular football player on the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of like that for Luongo, where he's been able to succeed in those moments because he's snuck out from the shadows of Brodeur to deliver those moments with something to prove, with a chip on his shoulder. And now here he is, and it's his situation, and he's got this team that seems, by all measures, to be far better than the team across the ice from it. And yet, he's being outplayed by the goalie on the other side, who, by all rights, shouldn't be there. I mean, you know, you think about Tim Thomas's history and how many people he had to convince that he belonged in the NHL, much less mm. was the best goalie in the NHL, before he got to this point. It's it's kind of hilarious. Uh, so I don't, yeah. I, yeah, they've got to be in Luongo's head. I think there's yeah. no question they're in Luongo's head. And, and that being the case, with the state of the Canucks' defense, I'm not really sure there's a whole lot that they can do to stem the tide in this series. Yeah, I think I, I think the other thing too is it, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and you know the goaltending obviously in the playoffs is the great equalizer, right? I mean, we've talked about the idea of just uh, the Bruins are probably not uh, as talented as the Canucks are coming into this series or whatever. But you get a hot goaltender, you can ride them all the way to the cup. We saw it with Edmonton a couple of years ago with Rollison. We've seen it. You've seen it a, a million times when a goaltender gets hot. Tim Thomas apparently is now, you know, really playing with a ton of confidence. He's been one of the best goalies in the league before. And Roberto Luongo is just not – if they make – how big of a 
of a gamble is that for the coach to make that switch? It's, it's, well, it's once, once you make that switch, you're making that switch permanently. I mean, we all remember the nonsense that followed Patrick Roy being taken out of a regular season game in which he was getting absolutely shelled and doing nothing about it. Um, if Luongo were to be benched for game six, that would probably be the end of his time in Vancouver. Um, so you're talking about major shockwaves. The time to do this was for game five to make the switch. To you know, it's it's just it you know it's it doesn't seem to me that they've that they've timed this particularly well. Right. Uh, now we wanted to talk to you a little bit about the about the headshots and about you know we we talked a little bit last week about the NHL gaining ground because this is a good matchup. This is a uh, an American team and a Canadian team. Uh, one of the original six with the Bruins, and they haven't won in you know a hundred years, and uh, you know the cup hasn't been in Canada in eighteen years. Uh, th- this being a good matchup, and also being in prime time, you know the games uh, game one in prime time on a Wednesday night in, on NBC, going up against absolutely nothing, right? You know, literally, absolutely nothing. So this was a really a major time for the NHL to gain ground, Kevin. And what do you have? You have the finger biting incident. Which just sounds naughty, by the way. But you have the finger biting incident. Yep. You know, then you have the no suspension for that player. You have the finger waving in the next game, and then you have the hit. And this is a little bit of the NHL's worst nightmare. Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, you know, from a public relations standpoint, this isn't positive. You know, this is an opportunity to win fans, and the NHL has a very, very difficult time towing the line between what it is to different segments of its fan base. Sometimes well, what, it's high-octane, violent fun, and sometimes it's the game that hockey moms are taking their hockey-playing eight-year-olds to see. And they're two very different things. When you watch an NFL game, when you watch a Major League Baseball game, when you watch a, an NBA game, what you're seeing is what the kids can try to emulate when they play themselves. You know, once the peewees move into tackle football, the Pop Warner, they're right. able to start tackling, and everything that they do is the same that they would see on the professional field. Well, Kevin, what but do you then think you get to hockey, and you see the fighting, and you see some of these hits, and you see the way the game is played, and you see guys playing without visors, and it's a totally different game. And that's a really difficult thing to, to comprehend because then – you know, who are they promoting to? Are they promoting for the fans who are screaming for blood when Rome hits Horton? Or something different? And what ends up happening is you get all of this fringe behavior, like Burroughs biting Bergeron, that ends up really upsetting the apple cart. And it, it happens time and time again because you want these players playing on that edge because when they play on that edge, that's when the games are most exciting. Right. No, for sure. Cal, uh it's a really vicious cycle. It's 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 a it's a rough balance that they're trying to maintain and as a result yeah. they're const- they're basically constantly playing with fire. Well, Kevin, what are they what are they trying to do? Are they trying to market to a broader audience or sh- or do you think the strategy is to just focus on the core audience, the the real diehard hockey fans and market well, to them? The problem is that the diehard the diehards are divided between those two groups that I that I referenced. Right. And, well, yeah. You know, it's two very different experiences that should be presented to them. I have to imagine the hockey moms feel a little awkward when the half-naked ice girls are giving their kids prizes. <laughs> it's a little probably awkward. Right. And at the same time, 
you know, the fans screaming for blood are saying, well, why aren't the Bruins playing a more violent game? And, well, part of the reason is because the league penalizes them for doing so should they choose to. And they don't want to be penalized by losing the cup for retaliation. And so it doesn't happen. And there's a a segment of the population watching this team that's really disappointed by that. These are the big, bad Bruins, and there's nothing bad about them. They are as disciplined a (laughs) hockey club as you could ask for. And, you know, when I'm looking at this series, you know, they're even right now, but the Bruins have all the momentum, and they've got all this discipline. And the combination of those two things is going to make it very difficult for Vancouver to win the series. Because Vancouver is going to start feeling like if they make one mistake, the series is over. Right. And when you, you can't play that way. You can't play on those eggshells. But they're really starting to get to the point where you, you sense that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, now, Kevin, do you feel that the that the suspension handed out was – well, first of all, do you feel that the, that that that's the kind of hit that the NHL has to you know look at the look at the rule and uh, I guess it was like rule forty three or something to that effect. Um, but they, they have to. It's, it was a it was a blindside right. hit with pace right. to the head of a defenseless opponent, mm-hmm. and it happened long enough after the puck had been released that it couldn't possibly be considered a legitimate hit on a play with a player with the puck. Okay. So I mean, do you, you have a puck on your you have stick, a... then you kind of have an obligation to be paying attention to what's going on around you, and you sure. know that you're a target because you've got the puck on your stick. But if you release the puck and you can say 1,001, 1,002, and then somebody clocks you in the head from the blind side, there's nothing right about that. Yeah, and, no, it was, a, know, three, it was a three-stride hit. It was a three-stride hit. No, absolutely. It was a three-stride hit. But my my question was, more in the sense of what they actually suspended him for, as opposed to like that's where they get into the definition of the rule. And I well, think the, prob- that- the problem is the suspension is partly based on the injury, right. and the suspension is partly based on the idea that you know there's this this player who is injured and therefore reparation must be made in the form of a suspension. And for the Bruins in Game Four, that reparation paid in full. I mean, right. Keith Ballard did everything the Bruins could want him to to help the Bruins win that game. And so now maybe, you know, are the Canucks going to play with five defensemen essentially, or are they going to give Ballard another chance to play? And is Ballard, when he gets the puck, going to play like it's a hand grenade? And if he does, is that going to be the undoing of the Canucks, that by itself? And so you look at the suspension, and it becomes pretty significant. You know, going into game four, everyone was saying, well, we lost our best goal scorer, and the Canucks only lost a sixth defenseman. It's not a fair trade. But as it turns out, at least in Game 4, it was a very fair trade. In fact, it was a trade that favored the Bruins quite quite significantly. Right. Now, do you do you think that, that that rule has to be looked at, though, as far as... Or how can they govern this better, Kevin? I mean, how can the... I know the NHL has tried, and now Brendan Shanahan is in there, and, and there, there are, are... It seems to me there are good guys working on this problem. But the NHL wants to regulate these headshots. They want to regulate, and and that's uh, you know how do, how do they govern this further? Is is there a way? The problem, to... the problem here isn't very different than the problem is in football. At the right. end of the day, you need to create enough of a motivation on both sides of the situation to alter player behavior. This is ingrained behavior. You see that guy skating with his head down or looking and admiring his pass, and you take him out. That's the behavior that's ingrained. 
And to change that behavior really is not an easy thing to do, but maybe part of the problem is that they're penalizing the player, but maybe not enough the team. And if you penalize the team for the player's behavior, then everyone is going to be accountable in one place. Kevin, you know, where does that behavior Rome, get ingrained? What's that? Where does that behavior get ingrained, though? Like, where did it start? Well, it's finishing. I mean, Rome was finishing his check. That's how he felt. What he felt was happening. It's not his right, fault. No. Horton decides that he's just going to keep admiring the puck. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, but he didn't you know, have to leave his like feet. It wasn't like he had premeditated the hit. It wasn't like he took a hack at his head. I mean, you know, he just skated into him and delivered what would have otherwise been a very good check. Right, Except but he for left his two feet. Two critical though, factors, right? He left his feet. That I mean, that's the problem to me. Like the the problem. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure about when he left his feet. I mean, sometimes these impacts result in a player leaving their feet after yeah. the impact has happened. I mean, no, he didn't sure. jump into him. It wasn't a, you know a a flying elbow or anything like that. <laughs> it's close though. <laughs> yeah. It was, and, you know, the thing is, a lot of times a guy's momentum, like when you see a guy deliver a check where he brings his arms up, that momentum is going to carry him off the ice. It's not that he is jumping into his opponent, which is obviously a lot more dangerous. Right. More dangerous on both sides. Once you turn yourself into a projectile on the ice, you never know what's going to happen to you. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, we've seen plenty of instances uh, both in the NHL and the NFL, which are collision sports more than they are contact sports. Yep. Where you know, when the person turns into a human missile, uh, the human missile usually winds up with the worst of the hit. But very often, uh, yeah. Now, let, going forward in this series, obviously game five uh, is tomorrow night. And uh, what what are your feelings for the rest of the series? Obviously, Boston has all the momentum. Uh, they could uh, be bringing the cup home. They go back to Vancouver, right, for tomorrow night's game. Yep. And uh, so can Vancouver, can the Sedin Twins get going? Can can they get some momentum back? Or do you do you really see uh, uh, the Bruins going uh, the rest of the way? You know, it's funny. For a long time, I saw the Sedins, Daniel and Henrik, as really excellent second-line forwards. And if you had a good enough team to surround them such that they would be second-line forwards, you could win a cup. Right. And over the course of the past two seasons, they've obviously stepped up their games to the point where everyone considers them to be first-line players. And they certainly produce statistically in a, in a manner that's cons- consistent with that. Um, but in this series, they've been largely invisible. And unless that changes, and that's got to really change in a dramatic way, and we've got to you know, sort of wonder, well, why has it been the case? Even in Vancouver, when, when Vigneault had the choice of the lines, the Sedins were still largely invisible. You know, Ryan Kessler, through the first three rounds in the, reg- the second half of the regular season, was you know, one of the top five players in the entire National Hockey League. And the wheels have fallen off the wagon a bit there as well. It went <laughs> yeah. from being a very dominant player to being someone you have to look for on the ice. Right. And with those three guys, if they can't step up their games dramatically, I don't see how Vancouver's going to be close because Vancouver's defense is in a shambles and the Bruins are playing with enough confidence that, you know, they have a defensive zone breakdown and they say, well, Thomas is going to get it. And Thomas isn't throwing his defense under the bus. He's going and and he's getting it. Time yeah. and time again. And when you're playing with that confidence, you just, you know, there's not a lot of worry on the ice. 
the Canucks have to get the Bruins to worry. And, you know, given what they've thrown at them so far, the biting, the hit to Horton, the taunting, um, <laughs> the superior puck movement, whatever they've brought to the Bruins, the Bruins have met it, matched it, and topped it. And, yeah, the first two games were really, really close. You know, a, a lucky break in either direction would have changed the way both of those games went. So in two games, the Bruins have completely dominated, and in two games, the Canucks have barely won. And now we're heading into game five, and the Canucks are going to be dealing with the pressure of going home. And now I'm not even sure home ice is an advantage for them. It right. may be a disadvantage. Yep, because of the pressure now on the, the long gun, sure. Now it's yep. don't blow it. Yep. No, for I sure. I wish I knew yeah. what the heck you guys were talking about. <laughs> Kevin, let's let's welcome your old friend Pop Culture PJ into the conversation. Excellent. Hey, buddy. Hey, PJ. Hey, tell me, are you still are you still playing a, a, a mean piano? I am. I've actually been playing with a band and uh, having a really good time with it here in Boston. That's fantastic. Yeah, I I I, I should uh, let everybody know that Kevin and I were part of a production of Pink Floyd The Wall that was the only authorized production of Pink Floyd The Wall to be personally approved by Roger Waters himself. That's correct. The only student right. production wow. that ever got the stamp from Roger. And uh, the anniversary was recently, right, Peach? Yeah, yeah, 20 the, years come and gone. 20-year anniversary was uh, was in April, right, I think? It was this past April, yeah. Yeah, yep. we did it actually on April 19th, Patriots Day. I, uh, oh wow! See, <laughs> so we 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 have to we 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 played a little inside baseball with Kevin because uh, our our producer goes way back with him. So oh uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, and and you know what else too, Kevin? I've uh, uh, enjoyed the the music references going back and forth. You uh, the intro music for you tonight was the Zambonis. Yeah, they're uh, a uh, Bridgeport based band that plays nothing but songs about hockey. And right. the uh, fun thing about them, you talk about only you know, authorized That's casting youth. a wide net. I like that. <laughs> the Zambonis have, are the only, only entity outside of the company that makes the ice resurfacing machine that are licensed to use the Zamboni name. Is that right? That's right. Wow, that's fantastic. I got to tell, tell you guys this story because you told me this today, Kevin, and I thought this was fantastic. Uh, that you know, there's this band called the Zambonis, A and B. They write songs about hockey. Um, so, <laughs> Cal, you probably don't even know this either, but a, a buddy a up. and <laughs> B. We should we should tell the listeners out there that's one of our new sound effects, apparently, that uh, our producer has put into place because I say A and B quite a bit when I'm making a, a point. A little bit, a little bit, you do. So uh, thank you for that, Peach. We'll hear that again in a minute. But um, you know, no problem, Kevin. When I was when I was a kid, a buddy of mine and I decided that I, I was probably like 11 or 12 years old. A uh, buddy of mine, Kevin Cal, uh, yeah. decided that we were going to write an album in a day of all songs that had to do with sports. Like why? Like why couldn't? Why? How come there's no songs about sports? So we <laughs> we wrote a song called Slapshot. Uh, we wrote a song called Dreamin' About Summer, which was all about baseball. Um, and that was, oh, 28 years ago or whatever, 25 years ago or something. And me and this friend will still quote lines from that song. And every, every, every one of those songs ended with the name of the song. So the last line was, Slap Shot. 
dreaming about summer. Like every song ended with the title of the song. That was the last. Did you write songs for for Dirk Diggler as well? It sounds like the song <laughs> from Boogie Nights. <laughs> he will rock you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the Zamboni's uh, uh, awesome. We wanted to play that other song. Uh, I wanted to play this because uh, you had mentioned that this would be a good one. A long time ago, my friend Johnny got suspended for wearing an Islander Suck t-shirt. Okay, I'm going to stop it right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we need. Because Cal Cal is about to, is fuming. Cal, you want to get in on this song? How do you feel about this song? How does that song make you feel? It's all in good fun, right? (laughs) How many people, you grew up on Long Island, Kevin. How many people had uh, Islanders Suck t-shirts? I don't actually remember seeing any Islanders Suck t-shirts. Most of the the people in my school who were into the Rangers were girls who were wearing their Sasson jeans and their Ron Duguay jerseys. And the Ronnie Duguay jerseys, right? The number 44, right? It wasn't... You know, it, it wasn't that vociferous a rivalry beyond that. They were the ones who were really into it. You know, guys were tempted to be more into the into the Islanders. Right. And, you know, it, it gave Long, that team gave Long Island an identity. Yeah. That it didn't Absolutely. have before that team did what it did. And you know, you want to talk about sports team accomplishments? I don't think any sports team in in any league has ever done anything quite as impressive as the Islanders winning 19 consecutive playoff series. Yep, it's never been done. And you can take that to the Yankees, you can take that to whoever you want. Yeah, uh, and, and, they, and moreover, they hold the when you look yeah. at what they did, you know, some of those travel schedules were insane. Yeah. They were playing a first-round series on you know, out on the West Coast. Yep, yep. And, and you know, also the... Even the travel, you know, in the in the year that they beat the Canucks, you know, in the yep. finals or whatever, in the travel in that series, and you know, thankfully they took care of them in short order. But uh, yeah, no, you the, the Islanders did something. We've talked about it a lot on this show. Cal and I being, you know, one of six remaining Islander fans here in the greater metropolitan area. Uh, my brother, my brother, who you know quite well, Kevin, uh, being the other one. But um, you know, well, let me get your take on that while we have you. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you pay attention to it with your site, InsideHockey.com. Uh, what's your take on the Long Island uh, situation, the arena, the, the Wong situation, them getting the lighthouse? What's your take on that, Kevin? Well, you know, I think Wong has really made a pretty significant effort to keep that team on Long Island. And for all of the, you know, sports owners who claim one thing and do another – I think you can really say that Wong, for all of the positives and negatives about his ownership of the Islanders, has always been trying. You can look at the Alexei Yashin signing, trade trade and signing. You can look at some of the moves that have been made under his watch. You can certainly look at the Mike Milbury era and question the judgment. Yeah. But you'd never question the effort. Right. And so after all this time, I think he's earned the cachet to say, look, if this deal isn't done, if some deal isn't done for us to build a new arena, we got to go and understand that he's actually telling the truth. Now, the real question is, how much does the team mean to Long Island? And I really don't know the answer to that question at this point. Um, yeah. I don't know how much Long Island pride exists 
as an as an entity where the islanders are concerned because they've been so bad such a laughing stock for so long and even when things have been going well they've been laughed at right um you know the Rick DiPietro contract is a great example don't and, even get Cal started on Rick DiPietro well, because uh, <laughs> wait I think I think I think you're not going to expect what I'm going to say here that contract okay. was was some of the most genius sports management you could ever hope for from a sports team. <laughs> no that one saw contract, that contract. Do you want, do you know what the comparable contract is to that one? Yes. It's Evan Longoria. Uh-huh. And let's join the big celebration of the Rays and their genius in signing Evan Longoria to the deal they did because yeah. everyone's doing that right now. And at the time they signed that deal with Ricky DiPietro, he was a top 10 NHL goaltender. And the contract was an average salary for an NHL starting goaltender at that time. Yep. No, absolutely. So and now you, want, you, you look and you say, all right, it's a 15-year deal. Yep. Just you basic want inflation would make him the cheapest goalie in the league two-thirds exactly. of the way through the contract. Yep. It was a brilliant contract. It just didn't work out. And you know who else says that? My brother Scott always says that about DiPietro. Say whatever you want, but that contract was, was genius. And everybody does it in the NHL. Look at what they just tried to sign, um, uh, you know, this this Kovacek. past summer. Yeah, thank you. With the what the Devils tried to do with Kovalchuk, they tried to do the same thing for good reason. Yep. And the Islanders. And you know, the thing with Kovalchuk is he wasn't going to be a bargain in the same way. Right. Um, but you know, when you've got an economic system the way that the NHL set it up, the contract that the Islanders went after with DiPietro was actually a very smart move. Yep. It didn't work out for them. And as a result, they've become laughing stocks. But those people who are laughing at them are some of the same people who are celebrating Longoria's deal. Right. And no, hindsight no, is, you know, really nice, but you don't have it when you're when you're looking forward. Yep. I guess we find out uh, on August first how much Long Island uh, cares about uh, the Islanders. And we get well, it. I sure hope they stay because the last time a team won the cup and either disbanded or moved was the 1935 Montreal Maroons. So, for the sake of the history of the game, it would be nice for that team to remain in place, obviously, right. for fans as well. And I still have my Maroons jersey. <laughs> Somehow I doubt this. <laughs> Kevin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, and, uh, thanks for having me on, guys. You have a great night. Come back, uh, come back and join us again, talk a little Mets, because you seem to, uh, seem to know what you're talking about there, too. Would absolutely love to. Anytime, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. All right, so Kevin Greenstein from InsideHockey.com with some interesting stuff, Cal. Very interesting stuff. He, know, he, he knows hockey. He knows hockey. And, uh, you know, I is actually... He, now, is, is, he, is he a Bruins fan living up in Boston? I think he's become one. Okay. I think he's become one. But he runs a pretty straight shooting site. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You wouldn't know. That's why I'm asking, because you wouldn't yeah. know. No, he does. He, he's a straight shooter on the site, without a doubt. Well, that was uh, awesome of him to join us, and we appreciate it. And do do check out his uh, his website. It's really really good. InsideHockey.com, uh, of course, with the www beforehand and the whole thing. And uh, suddenly, I'm Steve Summers. Um, <laughs> with you there and PJ Cachopo behind the glass. The PJ Cachopo? No, who do you think I'm talking? PJ O'Rourke. Four two four two two zero eighteen seventeen. The number to call, and you there. Steve Summers is a uh, a local guy, Cal. 
He's a low key. Is as local as it gets. He is as local as it gets. Well, uh, before we bring uh, pop culture PJ back in here for his little pop culture PJ uh, moment, he has all sorts of stuff, all sorts of fun stuff. I, I did want to. <laughs> you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I did want to talk about this unwritten rule, this baseball thing, real quick. All right. All right. It, only because we had an interesting debate about this. I had a great debate with the uh, the baseball guys. I've mentioned them before in my little email group with the guys I play baseball with. Right. Um, going back and forth about the whole Posey thing. We had about 165 emails that went back and forth. Uh, with Buster Posey and the Cousins thing and, of course, Sabian's overreaction to it and everybody overreacts because it's a star, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what's your take on this, Cal? Do you change the rule? Does the rule need to be changed in 2011? Should you not be able to run a catcher anymore? It's an unwritten rule. You can run the catcher over. If he's blocking the plate, you can run him over. You can blast him. Jake yeah. Taylor style. Knock him into next week. There's a reference to a movie that came out in 1989. <laughs> uh, I, I think the game has changed. And one of the things that we talked about, um, if, if the catcher's got the ball, and he's going to block the plate from – and now I'm getting into a tough spot with, a, with an ex-catcher here, but the catcher's got the ball, and he's blocking the plate, and there's nowhere for the runner to go. I, I think the runner has the right to try to go through him to get to the plate. But if the catcher doesn't have the ball, I don't think he should be allowed to block the plate. Well, this is this – is, there's a couple of cruxes of the issue here. One of which is, as a catcher for you know twenty odd years, mm-hmm. I would seldom block the plate if I didn't have the ball or didn't think I was going to get the ball uh, in good stead before the runner was going to come into me. Because, because if I block the plate without the ball, I'm going to get blasted. Yes, you are. And the runner has every right to do so, but. What am I going to gain? I love the collision at the plate as a catcher. I always welcome the contact. It's one. Of, it was one of my favorite plays. I'm a, I'm a bit of a rockhead. Everybody would tell you that. I'm not. Uh, I'm not bright. But I, that was one of my favorite plays. I, I love that. Uh, if there was contact, that happens. That's part of the game. I enjoyed that. And, and again, we're going to use this phrase: part of the game, right? But why am I blocking the plate if the ball is not coming? Or if the ball's – the only time I block to the plate is if it's going to be bang-bang or the ball beats the guy. Here's a question for you. As a catcher, how were you taught? Growing up, how were you taught? Well, you have to, you have to qualify it because when I was in high school, they outlawed running the catcher. Right. So it wasn't allowed. Okay. So before in junior high school, it was still allowed. And I was taught that if, if the ball beats the runner, brace for a collision. Okay. Block the plate, brace for a collision. If the ball beats the runner. If the, if the play is going to be bang, bang. Yeah. Stick your leg out in front of the plate. That's it. Use your leg to block the plate. That's it. If it's not going to be bang, bang. And you you and you only have like a an outside shot at it, then go sweep tech. I was taught the sweep tech. 
And I okay. never see catchers use it. No, very rarely. I was taught a two-handed sweep tag where you take the ball uh, from your chest or wherever you receive it, okay, put your free hand over the glove and come into the plate, okay, and sweep tag that way. Now To protect the ball. Right. Now, once we started playing with spikes and not cleats, yeah. not as much fun. <laughs> Uh, but I was taught a two-handed sweep tag. I was taught a single-handed sweep tag. But I also was taught to block the plate with my leg, to right. use my shin guard to block the plate. Which you see very rarely these days. Yeah. The, but the only time I was bracing for a collision, like a real collision, was when the ball beat the runner by a lot. You know, otherwise the guy was going to slide. You know, <laughs> I... I <laughs> Pop Culture PJ has just chimed in. <laughs> oh, he makes us laugh. <laughs> that's how you that's how you pull the lever on Joker's Wild. Joker, Joker, and Triple. Well done. <laughs> uh, there's a 70s reference for you. That's fantastic. We're referencing Joker's Wild now. Apparently, my little affliction from today has caught up with Pop Culture PJ. Look, Cal. I want him to work in tic-tac-doe now. Deal of the century? Sale of the century, yeah. Sale of the century. Was it sale of the century? Sale of the century, yeah. Yes. Which was at, on after Pressure Luck. Right. That was a nice block. With Peter Tamarkin. With Peter Tamarkin. Wow. Sale, uh, sale, of the century, er, sale of the century and Pressure Luck, a nice block, I think from 11 to 12. Yeah, I think you're right. Very solid block in the summer. I like that. Um. Now you know going back to the catcher, you don't you don't see catchers they either don't block the plate at all or they block the plate with their whole body. Very rarely do you see them block the plate with their leg and their shin guard. Right. And and that was something that I was taught. Now look, let's just get that unwritten rule you can blast the catcher. We had this whole debate about the fact that there are two bases that you can run through. Uh, you touch and the play is over, and then the other two bases, you have to stay on the bag. That's why you don't see guys getting run at second and third base. Right. That's why there's always sliding there, because you have to stay on the bag. First base, you can run through the bag on a base hit or a ground ball in the infield or whatever. Uh, home plate is the only base that you can touch and the play is over. Right? So um, well, yeah, first base, I guess the play continues if you turn towards second. If you turn towards second, exactly. Right. There's qualifications on the play ending at first base. Um, but you touch home plate, the play is over. So you can knock the ball out from the catcher and still touch the plate. The play is done. You don't have to worry about staying on the bag. Point being, one of the things that was said was it's 2011. There's no, you know, why are we still running catchers? These players are, you know, making millions of dollars. And because I think it stays unless you take it away on both sides then the catcher can't block the plate and the runner can't run the, the catcher over. And I don't think you change it. I think what you do is you police the intent. Now, is the intent to knock the ball free or is the intent to injure the catcher? Now, I don't think there was intent to injure on Cousins' part. I don't think there was. I think he was trying to knock the ball free, which is what he's taught to do. And what he has to also, Cal, he has to go back to his bench. What if he doesn't do that? What if he just lets himself be tagged out? He's the winning right. one in extra innings. Right. 
Okay, it's the bottom of the, tw- uh, the top of the twelfth or whatever, and he's the winning run or the go-ahead run. And he's, he's a rookie trying to prove himself. He's a rookie trying to prove himself. He, he gets blasted if he goes back to his dugout. Of course. So, what's what's the what what's your take? How what do you do? I I think you try to score. You try to score. You don't try to hurt the catcher, but you try to score. And if that means knocking the catcher over. If he's got the ball in his hand and he's blocking the plate, it's your job to score. You knock him over. You're not trying to hurt him. You know, you're just trying to get to the plate. And how are you going to get to the plate if he's standing in the way? You got to knock him over. And well, and also more to the point though, Cal, you're trying to knock the ball out. You're trying to knock the ball out. Exactly. And dislodge the ball. Sometimes right. these guys get into like forearm shivers and stuff like that. That's where you got to be careful. Right. Like you can't give a, a, a forearm shiver to the guy's, you know, face. And throw a left uh, or right elbow at him. But if you, if you know if you're going to drop your leading shoulder and go right into his chest to try to knock that ball out, I don't see a problem with that. No, it's uh, you know everybody got upset with this idea of it's part of the game. You don't go after the head. No. At that point, you know his his mask might be off, his head might be exposed. Right. Which they tell you to leave. That was that's something that's changed. Yeah. When I was when I was coming up as a young a young buck catcher. You were taught to get rid of your helmet and face. Young, now, young now cub the, reporter. The young cub reporter. That's right. No, now you're you're taught to to keep it on at all keep costs. The only time right. you take your helmet off is to catch a foul ball. Right. Well, now or, they have the, know, they pop. have they've got the hockey style catcher's mask. I don't care for the hockey style. No, no, me neither. Couldn't get into it. Don't like it. You know, I wore it uh, my last couple of years playing and catching only because that's the only one we had. Mm-hmm. But my preference was always for the old school mask because I'm old school, Cal. I think you've proven that. Yes, I think. Well, here's the thing. We talked a little bit about Poppy and, and throwing inside. I think that needs to stay. I think these hitters need to get over it. Uh-huh. It's part of the game. Throwing, pitching inside is part of the game. These guys can't be allowed to hang out over home plate like it's, uh, you know, they got their arms up on a bar. And they're saddled up to uh, to the bar. They're too comfortable in the plate. And I'm not saying to throw at their head, but it's part of the game. Retaliation's part of the game. These these players dig in, they get as close to the plate as they can, and the armor that they wear. Yeah. The, these big wonking elbow pads that they wear. <laughs> Is that a Star Wars term? I think it might be. <laughs> <laughs> this big wonking these big uh Jawa pads that they wear in Tatooine. Yeah. Goodness. No, but, no, but seriously, I mean, look, you know, in 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 years gone by, if someone got hit on the elbow, you'd see them reemerge with a big elbow pad to protect the injury. Yeah. Right? Now, is every major league player, do they have an injured elbow? And only when they hit? Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, come ridiculous. on. And that, and that inspires so much confidence in these guys that they can hang over the plate and... and be able to uh, stand on top of the plate, or you know, or in Jason Bay's case, stand eight feet away from the plate. Can we get Jason Bay some armor for his arms, maybe, so he'll move a little closer to the plate, so maybe he can hit that outside pitch, maybe? Just a thought. He is hitting it, but he's pulling it. Oh, I can't even start with Jason. We don't. We don't want to get into Jason Bay. That's the, we're having such a nice night. But you know what? These pitchers. We were talking about Bob Gibson and Don Drysdale, and and even Dwight Gooden. Very few pitchers are going to pitch inside these days. They just don't do it. No, because if you miss, it's a home run. 
because these guys have no the the hitters have no threat of being backed off the plate. Right. So they can dive into the ball on the inner half, and if they miss, if you miss, it's not that big a deal. You're shaking your head. Cal and I do this show via video, and you're sh- and I know you're watching one of the many games, and you're shaking your head. And now I must know. <laughs> Are the Mets blowing another lead? Is that no? They're not. They're not blowing the lead. It, it was that was just a reaction. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> they're up four one going to the bottom of the ninth. Okay. So, so here let, comes here comes K Rod's option. They left the, no no K Rod actually came in in the eighth. I don't know oh. I don't know if you heard the outrage throughout the sports world when he comes in the game. <laughs> you know you could feel you could feel a shift in in the in the force. It's seismic. It is seismic. Uh, lastly, on this unwritten rules thing, Bryce Harper, the uh, natural, the phenom, the greatest player ever. Uh, 18-year-old drafted by the Washington Nationals. Uh, he is a uh, he is a phenom. I mean, you've never seen anything like this kid. He, he went and got his GED so he could start playing junior college baseball at the age of 16 or 17. There was an argument. Uh, argumentatively, he could have played in the majors at the age of 17. That's how good this kid is. Hits a home run the other day in a minor league game and blows a kiss to the pitcher rounding third base. Come on now. That's nice. Really? Is this what we... First of all, he has the most ridiculous... Let's bring Dirk Diggler back. He has the most ridiculous porn star mustache right now. Did you see his mustache in that clip? Yeah, I did. Oh, my gosh. He makes Dale Thayer look like... uh, Look stylish. This mustache is awful. He looks like... You know what he looks like, Cal? He looks like an 18-year-old kid in high school has a mustache. (laughs) That shows up one day with a mustache, and you're like, dude, no, no, no. What are you doing? Yeah, don't. No, no, no. Uh, but, well, I mean, come on. Okay, really? He, a little much. This kid. Can't you just play the game the right way, please? Could you? Come on. <laughs> come on. And shave while you're at it. I know I sound like a grumpy old man, but... You know, it wouldn't hurt you to shave either. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> Pop Culture PJ. <laughs> uh, we're going to welcome him back to the show. Pop Culture PJ, hi. Hi. <laughs> you're, uh, you're spot on. Uh, Bryce Harper does look like Keith Stone enjoying a cold Keystone beer in that commercial. He go. looks PG looks just like that. He's got the cheesiest, worst mustache you've ever seen. And he's an 18-year-old kid blowing kisses at the pitcher as he rounds third after a home run. I mean, come hanging on. Out, hanging out at the roller rink, picking up the ladies. That's right. <laughs> Just, Let me tell you something. If a kid needs to be pitched inside to, that's one right there. Yeah. Yeah. If you did that in my summer league, you'd see it in your ear the next time up. Wow. Without a doubt, you'd be facing one in the air. Uh, in the air. Well, anyway, I, I think they should throw inside more. I think these hitters should get over it, and I I don't think you change the rule on running the catcher. It's part of the game. It's part of the game. And as Johnny Bench said about uh, Posey, it's on Posey. It's his fault. Yeah, exactly. He said you're either blocking the plate or you're not. Can't be half and half, and that's why he got hurt. How about the outrage, the the Sabian just holier-than-thou outrage? Yeah, wow. It was – you would have thought – 
that a sniper took him out. Yeah. Uh, you know, saying that cousin should never play the game again. We'll all be happy, and you know, this right. poor kid's like, hey, I'm, just, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to make a name for myself or something. I was trying to score a run. Right. Oh, uh, it was, and you know, certain other writers got all incensed, and we have to change that. How how many times does this have to happen? P.S. If it was Josh Tolley, no one would have gave a crap. Nope. But it's because of who it was, and it's a marketable guy. Oh, we got to change the rule. No, you don't. No, you don't. Teach the kid to play the game the right way. And Buster Posey, you know, Buster Posey, uh, to his credit, you know, wasn't going to take the apology call from Cousins and stuff. He didn't at first. Right. Did you did you know Cal a couple years ago? You remember a couple years ago when Jeter got hurt on that play at third base in Toronto? With it, right, where the Blue Jays catcher came up the line to cover third and uh, dove at him to make dived actually, dived at him to make a tag, and Jeter separated his shoulder, and it's the only time he's ever been on the DL right? in his illustrious career. Do you know that Jeter didn't take his call, his apology call? I believe it. That's a bad job. It's a bad, oh yeah, it's a bad job, but I believe it. Come on. Like, the catcher came up the line deliberately to hurt you? Come on. What is it, is it only okay to play the game hard when you're Derek Jeter? But if somebody else plays the game hard, not allowed? Uh, everybody, everybody likes to throw roses at the feet of Derek Jeter, but maybe not take yourself a little too seriously. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I and I had a Yankee fan. This was during the email uh, exchange, Cal, going back and forth. I had a Yankee fan remind me of this. Right. And that's a terrible job. Well, anyway, that's what I feel about uh, the history of the game. Uh, PJ... The history of the game? <laughs> yeah, <all right>. Wow. <laughs> the unwritten rules of the game. The history of the game is a whole nother show. I didn't think we did that. <laughs> did I miss he that? He broken the unwritten laws, see? He broke me right. Well, what There's choice did I left done. <laughs> He stapled your head to the floor. Well, he At had first... to, didn't he? <laughs> At first, yes. Uh, PJ, apparently you've uh, you have a song? I don't know what that means. Uh, you said that you wrote a song. We would like to hear it. We, we got to make us beg. We, I mean, what gives? Uh, I set down a little music for you. I wanted you to hear the guitar. A little sleepy. Welcome, Welcome to Ready One Mode. Callan Sam Yes, I'll have the chicken. <laughs> So here's, here's where I start singing. Hold on, hold on. No, I don't start singing. Come on. Can you just read the specials again? Nice <laughs> veal piccata tonight. I love this place. I hate it when it gets crowded. Prime rib aju. I tell you what, that guitar, that guitar sounds awfully nice. It does sound nice. Wow, and the playing, masterful. Well, I try. Now, do you also did you also do a fun load song? Did I? I...
Well then, where did you get no, all I didn't people on such book. short notice? <laughs> how did you how did you put together that chorus on on such short notice? Oh, I am uh, boy. Talented. Lily can really sing. That is that's fantastic. We have to bring the fun load back as a regular segment now, just because of that. Yep. Absolutely, that was my that intention. Is, that is magnificent. Uh, well, and then we have to play this one too, just because it's fantastic. Cal, say something prophetic. Oh, let's see. I believe that the Boston Bruins are going to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> it's funnier when somebody else does that. <laughs> it wasn't so funny when I was pressing the button. When when you press the button, it's really funny. Uh, wow. It's uh, welcome to uh, <laughs> welcome to Haha's uh, in Poughkeepsie, Parsippany, <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey. What a great crowd we got tonight. Who hates homework? Um, Peach, what was the, what was, we got a couple of minutes here. <laughs> Let me tell you something, people will start stopping him on the street and calling him Calstradamus. You wait. The That's people the will. Yeah, the people will. Peach, what was the, uh, the pop culture thing you had to know, you wanted to know? Or should we uh, save it for next week? Do we not have time? We have plenty oh, of there's time. time. Well, all right, sir. Time. Right. But go Who's on. the answer to? My question, my question is this. Which classic rock mega group best adapted to the 1980s? Wow. Holy cow. Now, because because it, there are many groups. You think of what they sounded like in the 70s. Some of them go back to the 60s. And then they all, well, some, had to adapt to keep going in the 80s. I'll give you a Okay. Very good example. Yes, the prog rock group with the twenty-minute songs. I'm surprised because I didn't think you would reference yes. Uh, well, I'm using them as, as the example to sort of keep them out of the conversation. Right, uh, or, or, made, or keep, made, keep me from making fun of you. Go on. They, they made a huge. They made a huge change to their sound, and when they released nine hundred one two five. There wasn't a song on that album longer than seven minutes, and they even dropped the single, Owner of a Lonely Heart. Owner of a Lonely Heart, right. You know, so that they made a huge and successful adaptation to the 80s and then quickly changed course <laughs> for the rest of their careers and went back to what was working. That is So a... my question to you, to the panel, yeah. to Kevin Greenstein, if he wants to call back. <laughs> is what other groups. And at the same time, who succeeded, who do you think failed miserably? Let's uh, and, let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. Cal, let's you and I take... I can right, think... I've got, I've got one of each. I've got one of each as well. All right, go ahead, Cal. All right. Uh, who succeeded? Yes, start I, with I who think, succeeded. I think Aerosmith succeeded. Dang, you took mine. Dang. The 80s. Yes. Yes. And the and the, they spent a lot of the eighties in rehab. They did, but but at the end of the eighties, they came back when they did "Walk This Way" with Run DMC, which was a complete departure from what they did in the seventies. You got to adapt. 
That's a great point. That's a fantastic. Wait, 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 wait for it. Calstradamus. I don't think that quite applies there, but I'll I'll, I'll take it. It doesn't have to be with a prediction. It can just be when you say something really good. And that was really good. You had to play with the brothers. Yeah. You You want my failure? Absolutely. Yes. Cheap trick. Flamed out with the flame, big time. That's but that's not a huge hit for them. It was a hit, but and then they were gone. And then, well, then they were gone after that. Follow up the follow up to the flame, and there was one was a miserable failure. So it was a cover of Blitzkrieg Bop, wasn't it? You'd have to say they uh, they did not adapt well. I no, it was. It was a it was a cover of Blitzkrieg Bop, was it not? Was it a cover? They did. We'll, didn't we'll, they we'll check on not, that one. And we'll, we'll get back to you. I have a scary image in my head of, uh, or not image, but the sound in my head of him singing, and the girl with the mask, and, that was, ah, and they all went crazy. What's I don't think name? that was a cheap that? trick. Uh, I know what you're talking about, but I don't. Up, know up, 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 up. I would like that looked up, please. Right. Well, that that song was remade by Crocus. Who? <laughs> a band which only existed in the eighties. <laughs> in your head. <laughs> <laughs> the voices. Right. Well, right. I gotta go. Right, I gotta go with an. I gotta go with an obvious one then, because Cal took my Aerosmith. I thought Aerosmith was a great example mm-hmm. because of Walk This Way. Right. Um, and and that being a complete departure, and them adapting, bringing rap into you know doing a crossover hit. But um, I, do you throw that? You gotta say the Rolling Stones, right? The Rolling Stones, I think, adapted very well to the '80s. Yeah, that, that I'm saying on the success level. Right. But the Rolling Stones have sort of adapted to everything. You know, I mean, they've right. They've sort of adapted to every decade since they've been around. But they, their sound did change a wee bit. Yeah. No. Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. But it uh, needed to. Right? Absolutely. Oh, I have oh, I have another one. Okay, go on. There there I got some bands on my list that did not change their sound and uh the 80s did not go so well for them. <laughs> I got I another one. Failure. Yeah. Uh this is okay. a success. It's got to be a success Van Halen. Van Halen's uh biggest decade, I would say. And and that's got to be. Listen to 1984, okay, okay. and then and then listen, <laughs> and then listen to like 5150. No, you, when, no, you listen to 1984. Not a diamond day. 1984 you know is 1984 is a great album, and sure. it's a, it, it's a slight departure from uh, Van Halen One, Van Halen Two, Women and Children First, Fair Warning, uh, or Diver Down. Diver Down. It's obviously a little bit of a departure, but once you get to 5150 in like 19 or OU812 and 5150 in 1986 and 88. Yeah, but a brand new singer. They had they had to change with the new singer. Well, they still changed right. to the they still cha- I mean, okay. look at hey, Jump. A change, look at a jump. change in a lineup I think is is adapting. But look at Jump. Okay. And and yeah. look at Jump off 1984. I mean, Eddie Van Halen playing a keyboard solo. I mean, You're come right. on. You're right. If that's not adapting to the time, I don't know what is. Somewhere somewhere Keith somewhere our buddy Keith Lee McWilson's head is exploding. <laughs> He's got a phone. 
<laughs> that he's not that he's not, maybe not tuned in tonight. All right, so uh, Peach, give us a, uh, a success let, and a failure. Oh wait, well, we, let me, we need let me, a failure let me throw, from you. I'll, I'll throw some names at you because uh, I, I sent this out in, in an email to uh, uh, some people, and uh, I got some some arguments uh, as to what I thought were successes and failures. So uh, I'll just throw out the band name. I'll let you guys uh, shout at me. Okay. Uh, Pink, Flo- Pink Floyd in the, in the 1980s. Success. Successful adaptation, or now they're dealing with losing Roger Waters. Right. Nobody knows where they placed him. But uh, so, so in the '80s, they go from from the traditional Pink Nothing. Floyd sound of uh, the Wall and the Final Cut, and then three and a half years later, out comes Momentary Lapse of Reason and Learning to Fly. Learning to Fly, right? Which is a radio single. Hmm. Uh, I would say success. I'm going to go success. I, I give a thumbs up. Cal? It's a, it's a huge departure, but I think I think you're right, Steve. They were successful. Whether we liked it or not, that's a whole other story, but right. they were successful. Whether PJ I, I got protests on that. I got protests on this, too. I thought this was a very successful band, and my friend James said no, because they didn't change, they didn't change anything to be successful in the 80s, and that's Boston. Well, like, I'm with James. I mean, what did Boston change? Like, well, using... nothing. They just released a third album, which no one knew was coming. <laughs> People said, "What? The, they're still a band?" And then what did the they use? Was right? Did they use 37 guitars instead of 34? They like layering. They sh- they sure did. You know, they never the the my one of my favorite uh, things about Boston is that they never recorded an album in the same room together. Right, their albums were done by FedEx. That's Did you know that, Cal? I had no idea. No. Yeah, they were well. They were all sort of studio guys that had played in other bands and stuff like that. And so, and one uh, PJ can completely correct the story if I'm wrong, uh, and will. But uh, one of the guys was a, a real studio head, right? Like he was a, a, a tech head and stuff like that, and had built a studio or something, and had figured out the best yeah. way to combine everything and so they would record their parts in different parts of the country and sort of send them to one guy and he would compile them all to make an album is that right that's basically yeah completely right which i think is to get that sound but but uh, you know what always bothered me about that guys is the song you know we were just another band out of boston and like no you weren't you were five guys (laughs) you were five guys in different rooms across the country yeah, uh, I would There's say great things about and, FedEx though because they never they never lost the tape. That's right. That's true. I would say Boston is uh, you know they're sort of vanilla. They're sort of middle of the road. Okay, here's 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 one that also got shot down when I brought it up. Sticks. Oof. Sticks went from oh. Paradise Theater, the best of times, right to the Mister Roboto phase. And then again at the end of the eighties. They put out an album that that was a complete departure and put them on light FM. They got a little soft. They got they, soft. They did. They made a, yeah, they made a couple of changes in the eighties. Wow, I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna go thumbs down. Thumbs <laughs> down. Sticks failed. Just because, well, but see, to me though, that wasn't a departure uh, and a change in style because they had to adapt to the times. That was them doing a rock musical. Because Dennis DeYoung wanted to. Not adapting to the 80s in itself. 
No, that was that was adapting to Dennis DeYoung, uh, Dennis DeYoung's Mania. Well, here, here now here's here's a band that I think really did adapt very well, uh, and that's Queen. Yes, I would I would second that. Yeah, all the while keeping their epic sound, and yet still, uh, you know, you always know, huge, always theatrical, but uh, a little bit less raunchy. Yes. No, a little bit less raunchy rock and a little bit more Radio Gaga. Yes. Exactly. Well, they go from fat bottom girls to like Radio Gaga. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think Queen is a great example of being able to maintain your sound. You always know a Queen song, right? Yeah. Queen song comes on and you know it's Queen. Right. I get a tingle. That's true. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, sir. What uh, <clears throat> What about uh, uh, no foreigner. Be- yes, what about foreigner? They changed their sound. Did they? Did they? <laughs> I don't. From what to what? Her? Foreigner? Part, part, part because of the uh, I want to know what love is? That, that, that one? That's that's what I'm thinking of. How about what the Speedwagon? That's a, that's a good one, Aria Speedwagon. Are we, allowed to, are we allowed to have a band that changed its sound as the 80s went on? Like in the '80s itself, like did they have to be around in the '70s? They did. That's sort of the qualification. I, yeah, I, I, I would yeah. say because you know, we're looking for the classic rock mega groups that did that. Can I can right. I give you a big failure? Please. Please. Abba. Wow. Abba couldn't do it. You don't think so? No, they stayed Abba, and people lost interest. <laughs> and rightfully so. Well, mm-hmm. I'll give you another I, one. Okay. Meatloaf. <laughs> first of all, don't ever say that man's name on this radio program. That, that's first of all. And second of all, Would you I mean... Would to the wolf with the red roses? Don't ever quote that man. <laughs> I think I got the quote wrong, but okay. I got an interesting one for you guys. I'd love to get your take on it. Success or failure. And it, and it, it comes with a personnel change that was not their fault or intention. But uh, the Who. How do we where do we stand the on the Who? On my, the Who is on my list of failures for the eighties. Really? Yeah, I don't think I don't I don't think the Who the Who got through the eighties too well. After You Better You Bet, um, there were three. I you know the, I think there were three albums with no response, and then you know they wrapped it up with a farewell tour in eighty nine. Right. And that, I don't even I don't even remember the Who from the eighties to be honest with you. Well, they had what Kenny Jones playing drums at that point, Peach. They had Kenny G playing drums, <laughs> which was not a good fit. <laughs> Terrible idea. Uh, all right, give me give me like one give me like one or two more, and then we'll wrap it up. I got thirty. You got, you got, well, but we gotta we gotta wrap up, man. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Take it offline. Other. Well, I'll, I'll give you a quick <laughs> rundown of my other failures, uh, in my opinion. Um, Steve Miller. When Abercadaver came out, it was all over. Epic Neil Young, fit. Neil Young really? did nothing. Oh, you don't get fights on that one, though. I get huge fights, but I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think people say Neil Young. The '80s were his successful decade. No, but then I he came back in the '90s. He had a '90s renaissance, sure. Yes. What year is Harvest Moon? Maybe eighty nine. So he, that's, he that's complete cast. At the tail end he put it back together. Maybe. 
I could be talking out my butt. That's practically the nineties, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, even, I, I even I even give uh, Stevie Wonder uh, a fail for the eighties. Wow. No, I disagree with that. Oh, Cal is upset. You've upset Cal. Why do you Why do you disagree, Cal? Stevie Wonder was huge in the eighties. He might not have been as good, but he was huge. Ah, but did he did he change yeah, his sound? He had commercial that? success, of course. Right. But it's not it, a commercial success, Cal. Well, that's well, stuff. that's right, and I, I guess that's how we're looking at it. Right, <clears throat> we're looking at the at the product rather than the result. Well, we're looking at it in whatever way makes me happy. You know, <laughs> Some, sometimes I just don't know. Harvest yeah, Moon was released in 1992, gentlemen. 1992. Uh-huh. There you go. So Neil Young, Neil Young holds holds water. Stevie Wonder in the 80s. You're talking about uh, just called to say I love you. Right. Yeah. Uh, these are Cosby show. Yeah, these are not these these are not what I would like to you know go with Stevie Wonder with. That's not strong. Yeah, that's not that's not you know Stevie Gold. Yeah, that's not superstitious or, you know, I mean, the stuff that kills you off of, uh, what's that album? What's the big album? Visions, Fulfilling Thank the First Finale, Talking Inter- Book. Intervisions, though, is is the album that gets Intervisions, me. Intervisions, fantastic. Yeah. All right, I got, I got I wanna... a couple more. I'll run through them real fast. Huge success for the 80s. Huge adaptation and success genesis. Yes, huge. maybe the biggest. Maybe the biggest, that's right. Does Phil Collins get counted in that? Phil Collins solo? No. <laughs> we, no we do he not wasn't discuss. solo in the 70s. No, That's he wasn't. True. All right. Fair enough. Go ahead. Uh, also a huge reinvention, Black Sabbath. Believe, believe <laughs> yes. it or not. I believe it. Brought in, brought in Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> Which is something, something the Mets have talked about doing. <laughs> Rest in peace. Also, the rest kinks. More. That's right. Think the of kinks. the kinks. Start, come starting dancing. way back in 66, 65, they survived the 70s. They come into the 80s and they change things up. Come dancing. Come, come dancing, right. Mm-hmm. And, God, I uh, love Andy? that song. Ted Danson, that's right. The uh, Give the People What They Want album, another huge album in the 80s for them. And everybody, right. Ted Danson. Sorry. Uh, I like the Kinks in that list. Excellent. ZZ Top. Ew. ZZ Top brought in a drum machine and had their biggest hits. Yeah, El- El- Eliminator, uh, Excalibur. Uh, mm-hmm. what, are the, what, are the, what are the names of those albums? She Got Excommunicator. The ex- <laughs> the ex- <laughs> Excommunicator. They sound right. like uh, Charlie Sheen's pitches in Major League right. Two. Vibrator. The, the Terminator. The uh, see you later. And the baked potato. <laughs> and the baked potato. You know, you, you want to know another huge success, I think? I don't know if it's on your list. Heart. Huge. Ooh, wow. Huge. Oh, because, wow. Uh, yeah. Great call. A little bit more towards ballads, and they started giving Nancy some donuts. That's right. Oh, PJ. <laughs> oh, that's about right. Nancy I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, on that note. Oh, please. <laughs> on the donut note. Well, I I, yeah. uh, I do actually hear the little guy crying. So let's uh, let's uh, let's close let's close it out. That was fun. That was excellent, Pete. Great call. Thanks, Pete.
Uh, that is all the time we have for Ready to Unload tonight. Let me uh, take... There we go. There we go. Nice. There we go. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Kevin Greenstein, from InsideHockey.com. Definitely check out his website. It is worth the trip. And, of course, Pop Culture PJ for producing the show and providing us with uh, a fantastic conversation to have at the end of the show. Will you join us next week, PJ? No. I mean, yeah. Great. Uh, Cal, final unload. Final unload. Happy 50th birthday. 50th birthday. Michael J. Fox. Aw. I I cannot top that final unload, so I will not try. Oh, come on. All right. Uh, Final unload. Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm interested to see uh, what happens with this NBA Finals. I may, I may watch. If there's a game seven, maybe I'll watch. How do you like that? Well, real quick, Dallas is up by five with seven minutes left. Nice. Go Novitskis. All right, uh, that is all the time we have. We will see you folks next week on Radio and Load with Cal and Sam Pete. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Definitely tune into the podcast. Definitely check out Kevin's website. And uh, for Brian Calvi, I'm Steve Sampietro. We'll see you next time. Good night, everybody. <laughs>